Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, as every week, I am your host, Adam Wilder, and today we have with us Brigadier General Retired Greg Bowen, who, as of today, is a senior fellow at the National Institute for Deterrent Studies and a consultant on many topics. And he started his Army career as an air defense officer and moved into missile defense and then ultimately ended up retiring as the Deputy J-3 at U.S. Strategic Command. Greg, thanks for being here with us today. Thanks for having me back, Adam. Appreciate it. So what we wanted to talk about today is a topic we haven't really talked about much on NIDS, and that is the role of air defenses and missile defenses in our current fight with Russia or our potential fight with Russia, our proxy fight, let's call it that, with Russia, and then this preparation for the conflict that we believe is at least possible in the Asia Pacific with China and for the Army and for air defenders in particular, there has been, as you'll talk about, a shift away from the role of air defense during the global war on terror. And then now that we're back in a peer environment in which we don't think we'll be able to maintain air superiority as we were in Afghanistan and Iraq, air defense is back as an important topic. So with that, could you sort of take us back in time to the cold war and then bring us forward to the present? Sure. Um, I guess I, I have now officially become one of the old guys uh, as a, a former Cold Warrior. Um, but it's been kind of an interesting back-to-the-future sort of uh, vibe I've been getting as I, I read things and talk to people. So as a young air defense lieutenant, uh, I was at my officer basic course at Fort Bliss, Texas. And they, um, they, they gave us our first classified threat briefing. And at that time, it was the Soviets. It was all Soviets all the time. That was the, that was the enemy. It was a great time because you knew who your enemy was. Uh, so they, they brought us into this room and, you know, made a big deal of it. You had to sign into the roster and show your ID card. And it was all hush-hush. And, and they proceeded to give us two hours of, of threat briefings on Soviet aircraft and, and missile systems and whatnot. And I walked out of there convinced that... I was going to die in the Fulda Gap fighting the Ruskies. That's just how it was going to go down because they had more tanks and more planes and more helicopters and they were going to crush us. Um, so that was kind of the environment that we uh, that we trained in. And, and the Army maneuver units uh, had to get used to fighting with uh, without air supremacy or air superiority, maybe air parity at best. And so we... We trained a lot with the maneuver guys and integrated air defense into the maneuver elements 
and basically try to keep a bubble over them as they move forward. Um, so that was kind of kind of how things uh, were done back then. Um, now, when you were doing that, how relevant was the thought, which is you know sort of a concern today? of Russian sort of short-range tactical nuclear weapons. Was that something you prepared for? And is that something you see us preparing for today? Yeah, our assumption, um, well, there was a lot <laughs> There was a lot of miracles that had to occur uh, for the fight in Europe to work out, not the least of which was we had to be able to flow forces into Germany and into Europe in order to blunt the Soviet armor coming across uh, through the Folda Gap. Um, our assumption was we would be able to do that and stop them. And then we thought they were probably going to use tactical nukes to, to cause a breakthrough. And so we trained constantly um, in, in mop suits for chemical warfare and in a radiological environment um, that we had all kinds of procedures um, that, that we had to practice constantly because we assumed we were going to be having to fight in that kind of an environment. So it's, yeah, again, and as you hear Putin's blustering and, um, you know, what's going to happen in the Ukraine, is he going to pop a couple of nukes to, to, to gain an advantage? Um, that all kind of comes back to me is, is it, that's a difficult environment to fight in. And do you see, is there, is there any sort of effort underway today that, would attempt to blunt those potential, you know, for example, you know, I and others have written about, you know, potential attacks, you know, if, if hypothetically Russia decided to move into the Baltic states and then NATO responded that they might use, you know, nuclear weapons to blunt a NATO advance in the Sawaki gap, something to that effect. Would is the Army's air defense capability today prepared to try to, you know, blunt those type of attacks? Uh, I mean, we, we've watched in the, the, the video videos from Ukraine where uh, Ukrainians are shooting down cruise missiles uh, that the Russians are launching. You, you can literally watch them, cruise missiles coming over. And then they're they're using weapons provided by the United States to shoot them down. Uh, are we prepared for for that kind of a attack today? Um, I, I I would say we are getting prepared. So it, and I've seen those videos, and that also warmed my heart. Being a former Stinger guy, because they're those are Stingers, yeah. and the you know we sent a lot of Stingers to Afghanistan in the eighties when the when the Russians were in there, and that ruined their day. So this this. Russians don't like the Stinger missile, um, <laughs> which is which is good. Um, but when you look at the at the nuke threat, um, they're they're gonna they could come in on cruise missiles, they could come in on ballistic missiles, they could be gravity weapons coming off of airplanes. Uh, so there's there is a variety of ways uh, that they can deliver those weapons, and we 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 can defend against some of that. But are you going to get all of them? Probably not. Sure. Sure. So go ahead. I interrupted you. I I don't know. It's uh, anyway, um, it's kind of been back to the future for me. So fast forward a little bit. um, Cold War ends. We have relative quiet for a few years. The army continues to kind of train and evolve the way they did. And then we get into GWAT. 
And for the next 20 years, the, uh, the army air defenders, um, are, are, are fighting a GWAT war, which is completely diff- different than what we were training for during the cold war. Now, having said that, um, I don't want to discount the fact that our Patriot force in the army, at least, uh, well, the army is the only one that has Patriot, but they, 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 they got crushed with the deployment cycle. Everybody wanted Patriots. Uh, and they were there for TBM defense mostly. Uh, there wasn't a big air threat, you know, in in Iraq. And what there was, the, the air force took care of pretty handily. And there was no air threat in uh, uh, Afghanistan. So the Patriot crews got um, d- they were just in constant rotations, and it, it was becoming a, a problem to sustain that for the army. Um, the only other kind of relevant air defense thing was um, was IFPIC, you know, the uh, indirect fire protection capability, which, which I also love because it's essentially a Vulcan cannon like I had when I was a lieutenant, um, except a little bit more high tech. But we got away from embedding air defense in the maneuver elements because we didn't need to. So the, the other air defense units that were going were running convoys and doing all kinds of different things that didn't have anything to do with air defense. So some of those skills atrophied and then the old guys like me that remembered how we did it back in the day had, you know, moved on and retired. And so now we've got a, uh, an entire generation of leaders in the army that have known nothing but GWAT and they've always been able to operate in a, in a benign air environment. Uh, so break, break. Now we, we were looking at the Russians in you know, in, in Europe. And then you've got the Chinese in the Indo-PACOM theater, and that will not be a benign air environment. Um, if we can get air parity, that would be good, but having air superiority or air supremacy is probably a bridge too far, particularly in, in, uh, Indo-PACOM because of the distances involved. So now the army is going to have to learn to fight in a, in a denied environment again, and the air defenders are going to have to step up and, and move with the maneuver units again. So it, we've kind of come full circle in my head. Uh, the technology is a little different. We've got new command and control systems, um, but uh, the, the basic blocking and tackling of what they're going to have to do is uh, eerily similar to what we did in the 1980s. So as we're as we think about uh, air defense in the Indo-Pacific, you know, th- there's this sort of a concern that U.S. bases in Japan, Guam, Diego Garcia are vulnerable and will be some of the first targets struck in an effort to deny the United States the ability to push, you know, push the Chinese back from Taiwan. And so this, of course, is a perfect opportunity for air defense to play an important and critical role as you as you contemplate the capabilities of the Chinese and then our air defense capabilities that are online or coming online, do you think that we have sufficient capability, the right capability, to effectively defend uh, those bases and those assets? And then even, you know, the, the Chinese will be seeking to strike uh, U.S. the the American fleet, and can the Army from ground bases across the Pacific, you know, provide that sort of overwatch 
that is required to defend a fleet? Do we have the kind of long range fires and, and all of that that's required or are we highly vulnerable? Um, I wouldn't characterize us as highly vulnerable, but probably vulnerable. The, the, the Chinese have a lot of, um, they have a lot of missiles and a lot of, uh, pretty sophisticated systems. Um, I think the key to success in Indo-PACOM is, is going to be the integration of army ground-based air defense, missile defense in, in that case, primarily, and the Navy with their Aegis ships. Um, but you kind of touched on uh, the point I was going to make with the, the Aegis ships, the, the Navy uh, built those for fleet defense. And that's yeah. what they want to use them for. They don't want to park them off the coast of Guam and have them steaming around in circles for a month at a time, defending Guam or Diego or, you know, you pick your island. Um, so there's going to be a friction with the, between the Navy wanting to do fleet defense, which they need to do because um, they're, they're going to be targeted. But I don't think the, at least the, the current amount of inventory the Army has, I don't think the Army can do it alone. Now, they're, they're, they're working through that. Um, they're, they're doing more buys. Um, we are encouraging our allies um, to, to get some of these weapon systems. And, and we've got a number of them that want THAAD and, and Patriot, and we've been selling them those systems uh, and SM3s um, to some of the countries. So I think when you look at the, the allied picture in Indo-PACOM, China's kind of out there by themselves. And on the other side is all, the U.S. and all of our allies. And if you combine all that, I think um, you, you have a pretty decent chance. But look, no, no defense is going to be leak-proof. You're going to get some leakers. You're going to take some damage. Um, it's, it's just it's going to happen. And um, they will have to do a defense design. So they, they'll build, and they've already done this, I'm quite certain, um, their critical asset list, and from that will be their defended asset list, and then they will put their assets down to defend those critical things that absolutely, you know, the, the that we need to, to flow forces into the theater, and they'll they'll try to do that. Um, but you can't defend everywhere. We just don't have enough um, forces. And even uh, when I was at Stratcom, one of the things that Stratcom did was was integrated missile defense. So all the cross combatant command missile defense. And, and every year, um, the combatant commands would, would do a request for forces and everybody wanted Patriot and THAAD. They wanted more THAAD and Patriot than, than the army has in their inventory. So what we had to do at Stratcom was make some informed decisions and recommendations to the department that, yeah, this, this COCOM, uh, we agree they need three of these. Um, th these guys asked for three, but they could only have two because we just don't have enough, um, enough inventory out there. So, it's always been a uh, low density, high demand um, kind of capability, and that that's going to continue for the foreseeable future. I think. Now we're at that time of the show where we have to take a a quick break, but when we come back, I, I want to ask you about. You mentioned this low density, high demand, and I'm I'm curious as to why our uh, capabilities are not meeting that demand and so we're talking with greg bowen and we'll be right back
This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And you're listening to NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and we're talking with Brigadier General Retired Greg Bowen, and we're having a great discussion about air defense. Now, before the break, I ask you, you, you mentioned low density, high demand. And at this point, we have the technology pretty well in hand. We can make Patriots at a somewhat cost-effective price. Why do we not have more of it? Um, very simple. Uh, it's, it's budget priorities. Um, the, the army, uh, and again, I'm going back to, you know, 20 years of GWAT, that was an expensive proposition. So the army had to make some hard decisions on what are we going to spend money on for current ops? What are we going to spend money on for modernization, um, R and D? And there just wasn't enough money to go around. Uh, so while we still had the demand signals, uh, coming out of the combatant commands, I think the army was willing to accept a certain amount of risk uh, because they th- they had other things that they needed to spend their money on. So it was a prioritization scheme. There's n- there's never enough money. The other um, kind of economic angle to this, and you talk about Patriot or Thad, um, those are expensive missiles. Yeah, we we're, we've got production to the point where the cost is you know. Uh, acceptable to to the DOD. I don't want to buy a a THAAD (laughs) missile. I I can't afford that on my retirement pay. Uh, But you you quickly get into a situation where the enemy or the adversary can can saturate you with a bunch of low-cost ballistic missiles. And you you get into a a scenario where you're you're sending a $50 million missile interceptor up after a a $1 million ballistic missile. And the the economics kind of kind of burn you pretty quickly that way. So there's, um, there's other ways to get after the problem. There's, uh, there's what we used to call left of launch, uh, air defense. In other words, strike ops to, to take them out before they can launch. Uh, there's cyber things that you can do. There's electronic warfare things you can do and you mix all these capabilities together. The kinetic is just one part of a broader integrated air and missile defense system. Well, so this brings to mind an experience I had. So I was uh, a sailor on the uh, USS Ramage, which was a uh, Arleigh Burke DDG sixty one, and I'll never forget we were doing uh, we were doing operations. We we're we we're doing some training off the coast of Vieques uh, Island down. That was where the Atlantic Fleet used to train, and there was we were testing our CWIS, our close-in weapon system, our CWIS mountain. We, you know, you, we had it on auto and that there was an aircraft, a, an air force jet that was towing a drone on, I don't know, three or 4,000 feet of cable. And, you know, the CWIS was to acquire and then target the drone. And it did it, did it beautifully. And then it saw the, the cable and started 
shooting up the cable at, you know, and it was going to reach the aircraft. And so that was a bit of a, you could, that was a, a pilot who, who, uh, whenever he got back to base had, you know, had a, a wet flight suit. So, uh, I, I wonder, and this is just sort of off topic, but can, can see whiz mounts or they're, they're, you know, that was more than 20 years ago. Do we have something sort of, that's that sort of low cost, uh, option that I, you know, that can defend cause we have these systems on, you know, across the Navy fleet and it's, it's, you know, it's a close in defense for the, for the fleet. Do we have those that can, you know, defend bases and, you know, I've, I've not noticed on, you know, as I've been across the air force, for example, see with mounts, you know, uh, you know, out at airfields or anywhere else, do we have capabilities that might not be as expensive as, you know, as a Patriot? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so earlier I mentioned if pick and if pick is essentially a sea whiz on a trailer. Okay. And, and again, kind of going back to, to my history. Um, I, my first job as a Lieutenant was a Vulcan platoon leader. It's the same gun, this 20 millimeter Vulcan. And uh, so I have many fond memories of uh, <laughs> listening to Vulcans firing and, and shooting them. And it was great fun until you had to police up the brass and links because we had to do that <laughs> with, with shovels. Um, but yeah, so there, there's, if pick is out there and it's very effective and it, it's, it's capable of shooting down uh, mortar rounds. And I mean, it's, it's awesome. Um, you've got the Avenger system, which is uh, a couple of pods of stingers. It carries eight, four on each side. It's mounted on a Humvee. Um, that's very inexpensive. Those are out there right now. And there's some other things that they're looking at, but the, the key is, uh, is being able to characterize the battle space and, uh, and having the right sensors in the right place. Uh, so your radars and your infrared sensors, you got to be able to see the targets coming. And so I think uh, when they've been doing testing on IBCS and the whole idea behind IBCS is any sensor, any shooter, it's, right. they all plug in everything, the data all gets fused. And then the system says, you shoot at this and you shoot at this and it helps the, there's human in the loop, obviously, but, um, to, it, the way that we built these systems in the past, Adam, is they were they were stovepipes, or as we call them, cylinders of excellence, right? So a Patriot radar could only control a Patriot missile. Right. A THAAD radar could only do a THAAD missile, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now where we're getting to is any any sensor, be it coming off a, the spy radar on a ship or a Patriot radar or, or whatever, um, can feed into this system and and it figures out the track and it, it's, you know, it helps the operator select the right weapon to engage it. So we, we try to preserve our, our ammunition essentially. Yeah. So as we think about the Indo-Pacific and we think about, you know, this sort of air defense mission that's, you know, it's already here, but it's going to grow. And, you know, I, I often wonder as I think, about scenarios in which nuclear weapons might be used in the Indo-Pacific. I wonder if, so I, I could envision, for example, that uh, a carrier strike group is moving towards Taiwan, let's say from the United States, from California. And as it gets into the, the East China Sea, the Chinese 
uh, use a you know a low yield uh, theater nuclear weapon, ballistic missile, to it potentially initially, and maybe it's a demonstration strike to warn off the the you know the carrier strike group to say essentially turn around and go home. You don't want this fight. Or to potentially, if that fails, you know, maybe they strike the, you know, the carrier strike group. Is that a scenario in which our air defenses patriot Thad could actually defend the fleet against that? Or are those scenarios that we don't have? The, or, or, you know, the, then there's scenarios with, with, the, with the North Koreans can we effectively shoot down uh, North Korean ballistic missiles if that's something we want to do? Yeah. Um, so there's kind of a couple of different aspects to that, that question. So let me, let me try to attack the China problem first. Um, if they do a, uh, a de- what essentially would be a demonstration, right? If they, right. if they pop a nuke someplace just to, to warn us off, they're they're risking escalation so would they do that or would they just go all in and attack uh, a carrier strike group for example that's a calculus that they're going to have to figure out internally um when when looking at that from an air defense perspective uh yes the army if they're in the right places on the right islands with these systems can certainly put a bubble over navy ships and similarly the aegis ship can put a bubble over an an island that's got army or Marines on it operating, you know, so it's, it's gotta be a joint uh, effort, no matter how you do it. Uh, There's, I I can't fathom any scenario where just single service is going to do their thing. It's, it's going to be a joint and combined operation with our allies and and all of our joint force. So uh, I think when you, when you get everything kludged together, um, there's a, a, a reasonable chance of having some success um, but it's going to be tough because the, the Chinese have a lot of missiles. Um, the, the other thing, though, though, that has been kind of bouncing around in the back of my head is I have to think that China has been watching how badly the Russian army has underperformed in the Ukraine and maybe having second thoughts about, you know, going into Taiwan. Could could the same thing happen to them? Could they get bogged down for a year plus in and lose a whole pile of people and not get through their objective. So I think maybe the, the Ukraine thing is, is good from a, uh, Indo-PACOM perspective, because it may be giving the Chinese a moment to go, Hmm, are our guys that good, uh, or not? So. And an amphibious assault kind of, is certainly no easy task. <laughs> no, no. Uh, and of course I think the last U S amphibious assault for real was, Inchon, Inchon, yeah, during Korea, I think, yeah. So, we 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 aren't exactly up to date on that either, from a experience perspective. And then, kind of shifting to your North Korea question, yeah, we've got quite a bit of capability against the North Koreans. Um, you know, GMD was specifically built to counter that threat, and uh, I, I'm very confident uh, if they decide to shoot some this direction towards Konus, uh, we'll be able to take them out. That's that's. I think a foregone conclusion. Um, but, uh, the theater stuff, if they start raining, um, missiles down on Seoul and, and honestly, the, uh, Seoul is inside of, uh, artillery range sure. for the North Koreans. Yeah. So that's a, that's the, the bigger problem set there. Um, I don't know if we have enough forces in theater right now in, in 
South Korea between the U.S. systems and the South Korean systems to handle all of the stuff coming in. Um, I just I just don't know, but they're they will have a defense plan and they will have their their critical asset list and they'll be defending those things that they they need to defend with what they've got. And then now, as you think uh, Taiwan, and if so, if we can switch there, as we think about potential uses of nuclear weapons against Taiwan, what role do you think? Because I, I imagine that we will be equipping and selling the Taiwanese over the coming years all of the capability we think they might need to repel an invasion. Because part of the discussion is, you know, that the Taiwan should become a porcupine, you know, that can't be swallowed. And a significant portion of that would, would clearly be that they have to have air defense capabilities because, you know, they can expect a ballistic missile barrages, you know, they can expect perhaps uh, airborne assault, you know, all of these things would play a role. And the this is sort of exactly what, you know, the Army is prepared to fight. Or do you see uh, the Army actively preparing the, the Taiwanese? And, and is that an effort that's going well? Yeah, from uh, and again, I'm I'm on the outside now, looking in. But I do know um, we've had um, organizations in Taiwan for years training them very quietly. Um, that's acknowledged. Uh, but my understanding is they have upped that that game quite a bit. Uh, so there there is a lot of training going on. And, and you're right, the porcupine concept is is kind of where they're going. And as I look at it um, from from China's point of view. Um, I think there's a fairly low probability of them going nuclear um, trying to take Taiwan because one of the key things they want in Taiwan is all the industry. They want the chip plants. They want all the manufacturing cap. They don't want to blow all that stuff up. That That's the whole reason for going there in addition to, you know, saying you're, you're ours. Um, but they, I don't think they want to destroy the infrastructure. So my guess is they're trying to figure out a way they can, um, get in quickly and quietly and, and take down the government and take control without, you know, firing too many shots. Yeah. I mean, is my guess. You bring up a great point that this could be what we're preparing for, uh, might be the exact wrong approach that, that we think that the Chinese are going to take, that it could be sort of an internal effort that would be more along the lines of, a a coup, a spy movie, something to that effect, as opposed to a large-scale amphibious assault. Uh, so as we run out, you know, as with every show, we always run out of time in the midst of a conversation. So for our listeners who probably don't think about missile defenses and air defenses that frequently, what is the big takeaway for them as they think about, particularly for our audience that mostly is, you know, a nuclear focused audience, what do they need to know and sort of keep in the back of their minds as we end the show? Um, integrated air and missile defense uh, is, is back in style as we look at fighting a couple of near peer competitors potentially at the same time that have fifth generation fighter aircraft that have a lot of missiles 
um, sophisticated um, stealth capabilities, cruise missiles, you name it. Um, we're not fighting cavemen in, in this scenario. So the integrated air and missile defense um, is is going to be absolutely critical to success. It's something that has been, I won't say ignored, but it's been kind of on the back burner for the last 20 years because we didn't have a need. Now we have a need again, and we're, we've got a little bit of catching up to do. So it's, uh, it, it will be critical to our success if we do end up in a conflict. All right. Brigadier General Retired Greg Bowen, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. Well, so Adam's afterthoughts. Uh, that was another interesting episode where we were able to discuss it's something that we just don't think about that often, air defense. And I think Greg really pointed this out, that it sort of went away as a concern during the GWAT, if I can use that term anymore. Uh, and now it's back and probably more important than ever. And for me, you know, I spent a, a few years with the Army uh, as a professor at SAMS and then standing up the MDO department at the Combined Arms Center. And I sort of, in my understanding of the Army, came to think that air defense was going to become sort of a critical, if not the critical mission of the Army, because that would be where it can play a most relevant role in the Pacific. So this was a good talk. I'm, I'm glad we, we talked about air defense and missile defense, because I think it's something we can often forget. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.